Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Beyond Eight Figures. Really happy to have you. We have an amazing guest in Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa. She's an amazing author, businesswoman, podcaster, and just goes on and on. That's her professor. Um, cannot wait for you to hear this interview. But before we get into this, once again, please check out our sponsor, not our new sponsor, but our sponsor, makethecut.fm. This team does an amazing job of producing my podcast. They take care of everything I need to do behind the scenes so I can focus on just having really great conversations with entrepreneurs like Lori. They take care of everything, let me focus on what I find important, and they just make it so much smooth. I had so much difficulty before I found this team, and I am just so happy that I get to work with them. So if you're thinking about starting your podcast or you're interested in taking your podcast up another notch, Go check out makethecut.fm and uh, tell them AJ from Beyond A Figure sent you. All right, let's talk about Lori. Lori Barkman is amazing. Uh, I had a great conversation you're about to hear. She's the founder and CEO of Small.Big, which is a value creation business transition advisor. Yeah, we've talked a lot about how to prepare your company to sell and the importance of it. Lori and her team do an amazing job of sort of really focusing. Now they work with a lot of companies, but they do a lot of work with family owned companies and planning that transition and keeping everything family friendly. Really very cool how they go about it. Some really great thinking and great processes that they use. She has amazing background as an mergers and acquisitions advisor, adjunct professor of entrepreneurism at Carnegie Mellon. Not bad. And She's a fellow podcaster with the succession stories, which are really cool. And they really get into the value of planning for your exit and how it is to bring everyone together. Now, I think in this conversation, she will share with us a lot of great things that will be great to learn from. I really do love some of the ways she talks about the importance of controlling our emotions in looking at decisions. Now, it is a very straightforward thing, yet in the heat of the moment, surprise, that's a very difficult piece. So just getting that extra reminder and listening to how she talks about bringing that to bear is worth it because the more often we hear good logical advice, maybe we'll actually pay attention to it and you know, use it in our lives. Really something close to my heart that she talks about in her podcast, and she'll talk a little bit more in depth here is as an entrepreneur, it's more important to focus on the entrepreneurial journey. You know, I love entrepreneurial journeys and talking about that. So she talks a lot about that focus on the entrepreneurial journey is so much more important than the outcome that so many of us focus on. It's not about selling our company. It's not about making huge amounts of money, even though that is directionally what we all want. It is about going deeper into where we are in the journey to be an entrepreneur. And it's really fascinating and really worth taking how she puts us and thinking about where you are and what you're doing to improve your own entrepreneurial journey and how important compassion is in running a company. It's just something that so easy to forget how impactful our roles are in building, growing, running companies. We have our teams, we have clients, customers, we have all sorts of people around us who are impacted by what we do. And just a little bit of compassion from us can so really have an outsized impact on other people's lives. And it was great listening to Laurie and something that I'm really trying to bring more into my efforts as an entrepreneur. I love this conversation with Laurie. She's super smart and just a really nice person. 
So let's go talk with Lori. Good morning, Lori. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really happy to have you here today. Thanks, AJ. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to the audience. I really love what you're doing with small.big and the way you've kind of built it from what I've been able to tell about your background, just because it is so fascinating. As someone who has been lucky enough to exit, but done each one horribly, there's a lot I think I can learn from you. And I know the audience is very interested to learn more about how to better sell their businesses. But before we kind of dive into that, I would love to know where you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days. I see myself as an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. I'm trying to enable them to achieve their goals. And that's why I call myself a business transition Sherpa. I have a process. I have tools. I have a roadmap. I don't know all the answers. And I think that's a hard thing for advisors to admit, but we don't. Anyone that says they have all the answers is, is probably, you know, not being, not being honest with you. I have a process and we do what we can do to maximize the value of your business, create that value when you are, when time is on your side, that's ideal. And then when you're ready, you know, creating those options for transition. And then I work with you on the process of letting go. And that's a really hard thing. And I recognize that. So I work with owners, not only on the business readiness side, how do we maximize that value, minimize risk, make sure we have a transferable asset, asset said, you know, kind of globally here. And then also we work on the personal side. We have to acknowledge that, that we need a plan. And then the financial side of it too. And, and I think the other part of what I really enjoy in this role is being collaborative and being part of a, of a key team to an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur has not built their business on their own. And it's probably worth saying it's something that when they're ready to sell or ready to transition, probably not really going to do it on their own either. I know you said you've gotten some experience there and we can talk about some of the battle scars, but that's really what I'm seeing is that entrepreneurs who just like building their business and those who make plans, they stick to it and they achieve it. So why not make that plan for the future? And so because of my background as an, what I'll call an operator, somebody who's been on the growth side and marketing for a very long time in big companies, small companies, everything in between, and my former role as a CEO, and we had an exit, and then in private equity and orbiting this entrepreneurial space where entrepreneurs need other people on their team. And that's what I want to be. I want to be a trusted advisor on that team. Well, I would love to know how your experience as an entrepreneur, I mean, looking at the transactions you've been involved in from both sides and that, but how do you see like your experience leading to this? Because yeah, you've been there, you've been as part of this process. So you get to have that feeling. It's not just that you're you know, talking with, you've actually been there. And I would, you know, as the entrepreneur, what have you brought into this? A lot of years of experience of being an intrapreneur, and I can explain what that means if the audience isn't familiar. Yes. There's different types of entrepreneurship. And I love doing a presentation for students at, at Carnegie Mellon about this. I do it every year to talk about what are the different types of entrepreneurship. Steve Blank wrote an article about this years ago, and I built from it. And one of the flavors of entrepreneurship is an intrapreneur, someone who is entrepreneurial within a larger or, or well-established organization. And that can look like a corporate startup. And I did have that experience many years ago in e-commerce with American Eagle Outfitters being on an you know, entrepreneurship team. We built a, what is now a very, very sizable business. And on and other occasions where I've brought my startup experience that I had to larger organizations. And I think doing that, being the one who is saying, hey, yes, we're a well-established company. You know, we have ways of doing it. We respect that. But let's be nimble, let's be agile, let's try new things, having a test and learn mentality has over time given me the ability to come into a new situation, whatever industry it is or whatever size company is, every company is a little bit of a snowflake. What can I come in and ask really good questions and discern, clarify what the issues are? And with strategic planning, we have a robust process for that. But nonetheless, even just understanding and meeting someone in one hour, I have the experience to try to understand what the issues are and help them in articulating what's important to them as the entrepreneur. So this entrepreneurial experience was really important to me. And then over time, 
becoming a CEO, going through the experience with my other executives in the company in the process of selling an existing very large, you know, third generation company. I was an outside hire. I was responsible for one of the subsidiaries. And the experience of going through that from the inside with a very, very large global company. I mean, they had they had an existing playbook of how they do acquisitions. It was interesting to see that. It was not your typical experience in the lower middle market. You know, the little lower middle market's gonna experience something different. But then when I was part after I went through the acquisition and I went through the integration and we worked on that and, and I eventually moved on. Going into private equity then was another side of being on a different side of the table of doing investments and, and evaluating deals. So I think putting it all together from being a business person who has been really not consultative all those years, I was an operator, but being able to clarify, uh, define where we need to be, how to then to work with the team and how do we get there. It's just been part of my DNA for a really long time. And now on this side of the table, in helping companies get ready for what might be the biggest day of their life, all these pieces start to really fit together as part of this toolkit that I've established over you know 25 plus years. I think that's really important because having known the mistakes I made without any real knowledge and sort of winging it, I would be curious with like the type of entrepreneur should be looking at what you're doing and having a conversation at you. And then when in there, business journey should they have that conversation? I think being a planner, being proactive is a good thing. If we're always running our business looking in the rear view, then how are we able to move forward? And it's a delicate balance because we are very much wrapped into the day-to-day. But the more we can think about their future and maybe stepping ahead, you know, just like in chess, you know, are we a couple moves ahead or are we just looking at what's next? And that is a hard thing to do, but that's my encouragement to the audience is to be thinking that way. The biggest reason I think is because if we can reverse engineer our future, when time is on our side, we have the luxury to make changes. Imagine you're on a big, big boat, right? And you need to be making a turn. That turn, like let's say a cruise ship, that turn is not happening in five minutes. (laughs) That turn could take a very long time to loop back around. And that's what some companies realize I have an example from my show, Succession Stories. There was a a guest of mine who had a company and largely their revenue was project-based. So it was one-time revenue. Maybe they had repeat clients, but maybe not. And what the owner had done was had over time, maybe six, seven years on his own, you know, I give him a lot of credit for doing this. He had conversations with strategic companies that maybe could be a fit for him, you know, to acquire him in the future. Or he was reaching out to private equity firms and he was asking questions about what characteristics were important to them, their investment mandates, and eventually realized the hard truth. So discovering the hard truth is part one. What are you going to do about it is part two. Yeah. And for him, kudos to him and the business, they did make a, a pretty significant change in their business model, and they introduced more of a recurring revenue service, which became a really important aspect for being an acquisition target. And that's eventually what happened as they were acquired. And if it was not for his effort all those years, and I think that whole process probably took about 10 years from when he really started, you know, exploring to eventually making those changes and then growing that aspect of the business. That's why I'm saying, like, you got to think about this as a cruise ship. This is not necessarily, hey, we make a change overnight and there you go. And it's sad, I think, when an entrepreneur has, call it 40 years or 30 years of time that they've invested in this business, it's been a good business for them. And then their anticipation is they're going to sell or transition it and, and maybe get top dollar. And they discover that it's not worth what they think it is. And that's a very, very common problem. And we can talk about why a company might not be worth what the owner thinks it is. Um, but that's when you're out of time and you're facing some maybe health decisions. You're, you know, maybe your health isn't the best. Maybe you're facing some other situations where you just need to get out. A lot of businesses never sell. They'll close. Yep. It's so funny because I've heard the discussion a lot um, as I've started to look about requiring companies about sort of the retirement pricing rather than pricing on the business value. you price it on sort of like, oh, the house mortgage or my retirement nest egg needs. It does get to be really interesting. But even 
before, you said something interesting about sort of reverse engineering. And I like that term as one. I once upon a time was a studied chemistry. And so retrosynthesis and all that stuff was my favorite part of everything. So reverse engineering is something I always enjoy. I found that very difficult. Like I knew sort of my exit, the last business that I did sell. And I got very lucky to sell in the mid sevens, but I had a much higher ego driven price. And I don't think I ever yeah, really took into effect what I would need to do other than just sort of this revenue concept. Like I need to grow, 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 grow to get to this eight figures. How do you help first entrepreneurs to set where that goal is? Because I know it changes ego, help, you know, all the things. Let's talk about that. And then let's talk about some of the ways, you know, to kind of get to that. I think it's important to start with goal setting and assessments. So the assessments is a really key phase. It's where I start with folks to get to know them, get to know their business, get to know their goals. And it's part of this overall process that I call strategic exit value planning. And if they work with me in this process, it's what let's call it six months. You know, it could be longer. And at the beginning, to your question, we go through a series of things looking at what are some of the risks? What are those hidden risks? What are those tripwires? Maybe they're not seeing. And how can I help them see something completely differently in their business where that aha moment is so important? And we'll go through a business assessment and we'll go through a personal assessment. And both of these assessments, you get a numerical score. People who are very quantitative love that because they want to see where they rank. Are they? <laughs> and if you're more into colors of red, yellow, or green, where are you? <laughs> and we give you both. And the other part of this process is a business valuation. I'm a certified value builder advisor. I use the value builder platform and that's the tools that we'll use for some of these assessments. But then for the evaluation, I have my uh, mergers and acquisitions advisory designation. And I partnered with Stony Hill Advisors. I know you mentioned that in the introduction. And Stony Hill Advisors is a mergers and acquisitions firm that's really specialized in the lower middle market. And so I blend these things together to help people understand if we look back and forward, what does this mean? So starting where where they are, where are they today? And then talking about where they want to be and what are the gaps? The financial part of it is, like you said, it could be, hey, when I retire, this is what I want to do. Or maybe they want to start another company. But having that exercise that we do is really interesting because it estimates what your company needs to sell for given the net number. The gross number is always interesting. It's sold for X, but the tax man takes a percentage and, <laughs> and folks like me, you know, who are measuring, you know, who are compensated on the success fee take a percentage and you have other advisors. And so if we net, 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 you know, what does that number look like? And well, this, this report that, that clients get back is really interesting because it says, in order to achieve your goal of this number, you need to sell your company for this number. And if we've just gone through valuation exercise and it says, oh boy, we have a difference here. Now the question is, is what are we going to do about it? What can we do? How much time do we have to affect that change? What would move the needle on the multiple? And the multiple, which we can talk about, is either a multiple of revenue or a multiple of a adjusted number for owners, um, which is either a seller discretionary earnings number or an adjusted EBITDA number. And the multiples really will vary. So we look at comps and we look at other, you know, other businesses that have sold in their space to try to get an understanding of that. And we come up with a range of value. And it's an art and a science to do that. And it's really, I think, an important step. A lot of companies when they're asked the question, or maybe they're not even thinking about this question, but perhaps they should, which is, what is my business worth? And if we don't know the answer to that, again, it's important to do. Some folks do that every three years, which we do advocate for, because especially if you've made changes in your business, to have a business valuation is an important thing. And that's, it's a, I feel like we're, it's a lot of work to get there, but it still kind of puts us at a starting block. Given that I'm having a lot of experience coming at this from the other side, do you find that the process becomes easier for the business owner you know, from the entrepreneur in selling? Because I know I walked away from deals that I should have taken in hindsight because I had hearsay and sort of puffery as my guide. 
um, from my valuation when we were at the height. And it was only after I got knocked out of my agency and then we rebuilt it slowly back up that I was able to kind of acknowledge that I wasn't going to get this. It was here. But I know I'm seeing as a buyer, seeing a range from things that I think are incredibly well-priced, which almost worry me. It's like, wait, what am I missing? But then the flip is the idea that sometimes these things are so far overpriced that I don't think there's a real conversation to be had. How do you see entrepreneurs change their willingness to get into the sales process when they go through the valuation? Well, one example that's probably pretty common is when a a smaller business is approached by someone, let's say they're approached by a broker or they're approached by a buyer directly, and they say, I'm interested in talking to you about selling your company. If that seller, the, the, the entrepreneur, has not prepared for that and not gotten organized, it may never get off the starting block. I had a situation where I was doing outbound contacting, cold, you know, cold outreach to different types of tech service companies for a client on behalf of a client. And that was my outreach. I said, I'm reaching out for half of a client, you know, to, to, they're interested in buying your, buying your business. Would you be open to talking? And they were open to talking. But when I asked for the financials, I never received them. It was always, oh, that's my wife. She takes care of it. Oh yeah, we're using QuickBooks. It should be easy. But then it was, oh, we're moving my son to college. I'm so sorry. I got sick. It went on and on and on. And finally, we just, we gave up. And that's a very, very common example is the things that should be at your fingertips. You're just not prepared for. I think the phrase that I would use is calling it pre-M&A, doing your own due diligence on your own organizational information. That's one of the, when I engage with a client for sell side, that's one of the first things that we do. We get organized and I create what I'll call an internal data room. It's, you know, it's a, it's a shared folder system where they can upload documents in folders and there's maybe a dozen or so different categories including your financials, your organizational documents and things about your employees, things about your customers and your contracts, if you have contracts, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of things that we need to just get our get at our fingertips because when we get asked the question, we need to not go hunting and pecking for things. It's when you're still trying to run your business, you need somebody who's got experience with the process that can manage it while you are day-to-day still making your business happen. It's a big thing. It takes a lot of time. You're already working 40, 50 hours a week. Are you really ready to add on another, you know, another chunk of time for this process? And that's, again, just in the getting ready phase is having someone say to you, yep, this is the stuff we need. Please upload it. Let's get going. And so that Sherpa nature, that someone saying, please do this. I love going to exercise classes. Why? Because they tell me what to do. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in this case, that's what we're doing. We're helping you by giving you that guidance to say, this is what we need to do. It's so funny you say that because in having conversations with someone from a private equity shop that I did not go with that did try and acquire me at one point. See, I do have that ego issue. My old company, they specifically built into the process as trying to be, get the entrepreneur as busy as possible in the process with the hope that the business they had that as part of their acquisition strategy was to sort of come in at one thing, but, you know, hopefully not too far, but the idea of pushing down the overall business just a bit to be able to acquire it and then repair the damage. But interestingly enough, a listener I was just chatting last week has what I jokingly call the puppy that poops gold, um, a SaaS with 70% net margins, growing 40% year over year. Eight years ago, he was working at a large security company and then went off on his own and developed this workflow process, SaaS for workflow for large enterprises and literally growing. Though there are larger players in the market and he's starting to get approached but he's kind of caught in between because he doesn't feel it's the right time. He knows he's also like, well, at this rate, I'm going to be at my good number just on my own revenue. 
you know, are my own means versus, you know, having to have an exit to hit his number. But then just maybe my question is in having my conversations, one, he's having a little difficulty in defining what he wants out of the process. But then two, I've noticed everyone, even the ones that are very interested are not coming to him. They're all trying to, it's like when you're trying to get someone to go out with you, but then you're not saying you want to go out with them. They're all like, well, you tell us what you're interested in or this or that, you know, and it's a very interesting process that it's almost pushing him away from people. And he is afraid of the very thing you said about getting dragged into this process because he doesn't want to, you know, make a mistake in his business. He has, he's built the business he's always dreamed of creating. And now all of a sudden people are interested and he's like, no, don't, you're going to make me break it. (laughs) There's certainly that aspect. I think there's also a very emotional aspect. Even you caught yourself, but you said my company or me, you know, you referred to first person. And I understand that, especially if this is a second generation seller, maybe, or a third generation seller, there's more emotional attachment, perhaps there's feelings of guilt. And if a competitor comes knocking on your door, imagine that dynamic. And so it is quite helpful to have a buffer to explain. It could be something that is interpreted one way, but is is quite common, you know, so it's Maybe it's something around what assets are included in the business sale and um, the expectation is quite normal. However, because it's a competitor, there's something they say, it sets you off the wrong way. And I'm just picking that example. It could be anything. If, if it's a competitor, there's a lot more sensitivities. I've seen some and the sort of the semi-passive aggressive, like, well, you know, we're kind of doing your favor. It's like, okay, good for you. It is an interesting thing to see. And there's suspicion, you know, like that maybe they're just snooping around. I had one client, it never got past the the non-disclosure. That is literally as far as it got. And the non-disclosure had to go to an attorney and it was somebody, you know, had paid money to get that edited and both sides signed it. But then my seller just could not get to the next step. He was just so untrusting of the other party. It's funny when you mention that because I've seen where I've walked away from looking at deals when I see something that is overly lawyered. At this day and age, there are standards, almost NDA structures. You can just go standard NDA. When you see something overly lawyered or whatever from the buyer's perspective, and and obviously probably on the sellers too, it just, it's like, well, this is not going to be a fun experience. You know, the process already. Yeah. That's right. I had an experience recently. I We do buy side as well as sell side. And in this buy side example, I'm working with a private equity group and I do outreach to companies and, and I'm making introductions. So step one is having the call. Step two, get them you know, to sign the non-disclosure and then we move on. And the potential seller said, let me, you know, I got to send this to my attorney. And they came back with questions. So the buyer flagged it, just like you said. He said, I'm not interested. If they're already sending an NDA to their attorneys, I'm not interested. Let's pass. So what I did to keep things moving is I contacted the, the potential seller and I just said, hey, FYI. And I told him straight out and I said, you got to make sure the juice is worth the squeeze here. Of those things that your lawyer redlined, I, and I, read, it, I read the redlines, they were really, really minor. I said, you know, they might pass on you. Is that something that you want to happen? And he said, no, it's not. And I said, okay. And he said, let me just circle back with my attorney. Okay. So he circled back and he said, yeah, the attorney's right. He said, the attorney great, agreed. And they went forward. And so you're 100% right. And this, this is where that, for that entrepreneur, it would, may never have moved forward had I not told him, hey, this is a stop right here. So then we talked earlier about it's better to look into the future we talk about goal setting, you know, with other guests. And I like the way you talk about looking and then reverse engineering, because I do think that is a great skill. It's very difficult to achieve, but with practice and through the process I've now reading through your site, I do, I think that's a really great way of approaching it. But one of the things I do know from my own experience and then talking with other entrepreneurs, we have this like, yes, we're going to sell almost from like two days before we start the business all the way through the process. But then we also 
have that like, not now mentality. It's usually, you know, I know in my case, it was when, you know, I didn't get serious until I had some larger companies, some holding companies kind of come and knock on the door and blow a lot of like really nice empty. Oh, wow. You're so amazing. You're so cool. And then like, sure, whatever you want. I think, yes, telling someone to prepare ahead of time is important, but like under what conditions do you half a million EBITDA? Do you talk? Yeah. Like I think sometimes it helps entrepreneurs to say, okay, maybe when I hit this number worth this, or I talk a lot about sort of those crossing the chasm numbers at three to 7 million worth things. All of a sudden you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Wait, I have more money, but it's worse. How can that happen? How can having more money be worse in a business? It hurts. So what are some of the structures you tell people to when? Because that I think is very hard for some entrepreneurs to really define. Sometimes it's about life stage as opposed to an age. Some people say, oh, I'm going to sell when I'm 65. And they have this age in mind. What we try to advocate for is, is life stage. So maybe you're 65, maybe you're not. But what is it that you want to be doing? Some entrepreneurs have this mountain climber mentality and they want to climb that mountain. They went to the top. They want to go to the next mountaintop. And so those are the folks who want to sell. They've built something. They're proud, but they want to sell and they want to move on and build something else. And so those folks might be just naturally inclined to sort of think the way that we're talking. For others who are more craftspeople and they, these could be, you know, lawyers, law firms, accounting firms, doctors, practices, these all need to turn over and sell or pass on at some point because we all know 100% of business owners are going to leave their company one day. How do we account for that? And people whose identity is so tied into the business really have trouble with this, this craft. I'll, I'll categorize them as the craftspeople. They are the craft, right? And it is difficult to separate. I am a doctor. This is who I am. This is what I do, right? Or I have a marketing agency. I am a marketer. And that identity, especially if their name, right? If their name of them or their family is on the door, very, very difficult. So the not now part of it is it's good to talk about it. And I do see this quite often. There's one married couple I just spoke to recently, and they are probably in their 50s. One of them is having health issues. They're a married couple. They manage, They run a uh, an engineering-related type firm, you know, professional services firm. They've been talking about it for years. It was always not now. They, they take out a, a, a decent uh, salary, and they have a nice lifestyle from the company. So it was definitely not now, not now. And when they talked to me, they said, yeah, we're really starting to think about it. But our challenge is when we do sell, we don't have that quote unquote annuity stream anymore coming to us. So what does that look like for us? And for them, I think the not now is catching up with them, unfortunately. So to go to your question at its core, of course, the answer is it depends. When does an entrepreneur really need to start thinking about this and working on it in earnest? It could be when they are, let's say, seven to 10 years away from that transition. And the transition, by the way, doesn't have to be selling the company. It could be other things. A transition event could be them just stepping back and maybe they want to sell off a piece of the business and kind of recapitalize the business. They don't want to be day-to-day CEO anymore. They want to change how they think about... So many times we'll, we'll say, we are business owners. That's, the, that's a statement that gives you that identity versus I own a business. I see it more from acquisition entrepreneurs. They want to own a portfolio and they want to own different businesses. And so they have this natural inclination to explain it that way, which I think is really healthy. There's a little bit of arm's length there. For an owner that has not only created the business, maybe, or they've acquired it, but they're in it day to day, they have a harder time with this separation notion. And the not now mentality does creep in. Uh, again, I think from a size standpoint for what's common, if you are interested in having help to sell your company, getting over a million in revenue is one metric. You know, for some folks that are listening that are under a million, can they sell their business on their own? Yes, you know, certainly. And there are folks like myself who work in the lower middle market. There are some companies that are just too small for us to work with. It just doesn't necessarily 
We're not going to add as much value to the process. And that's where they can, you know, use uh, some more Main Street types of tools, um, website aggregators and things. For us and what we do, and because the process is a little more white glove and, you know, some would say, oh, that's the process investors, investment bankers use. Yeah, it is. We're not bringing in the debt or equity investors into a deal. So all the other pieces of what we do are what investment bankers do. We're just doing it in a space where we have a lot less overhead. And so we can work with low, we can lower, work with a lower middle market. We can work with companies that are a million to 20 million, 30 million in revenue and use a process that is going to bring buyers to the table and creating a, we can create an auction process is ideal. Or we're working to, to do outbound and bring buyers to the table because of the outreach that we're doing. And again, I'll call it a little more white glove service than you're going to see from companies that are under a million. They don't typically get our, our, that level of service in this process. Yeah. I mean, it has been interesting to see the rise of like the micro acquire and yeah, environment and all of that. But at the end of the day, the multiple, yeah, even with some of the inflated multiples, which may make, well, inflated because I'm a buyer, <laughs> but the increase in multiple, it does seem like just isn't going to be there. But it is interesting for companies to start thinking. I know back in my day, everyone was like, well, it's only going to be worthwhile if you're at a million, however, my definition, you know, SDE, EBITDA, et cetera. Nowadays, I see a lot of people talking about it being more like the half a million that, you know, businesses start becoming more interesting at the half a million through cash flow. And it's interesting that, you know, this has changed just I have to say 10 years, over 10 years now, just in you know, one decade, what was a sellable business just being redefined. And I wonder how low we can really go just because of overhead and the ability, buying a company versus buying a job. But still, it's an interesting process. You said earlier, transitioning from like having, you know, the ongoing cash flow from the business to the set. And you also talked about transitioning from having a team the two things I found like when I did sell was even though I was getting paid out over like eight years, uh, was end of my agreement, like a large and then kind of a drift down. It was the fact that it was fixed. I had gotten so used to the idea that I had wild swings that like maybe in my head when I had the business, the wild swings when we had the occasional, usually towards the end of the year amazing revenue profit quarters. That was sort of my extra bonus. So then for me, it was like, I'm on a fixed income now, a very nice fixed income, but it was a fixed it. And that, it took me a while. But I think more was the first six months after selling, not having a team. I had to relearn. One, I had to relearn like how to use nine 9,000 tools that like my digital life was around. But that was really hard, you know, not having the people I had gotten so used to, even though they were flowing over the course of the 15 years or so. It was like, oh, I go have coffee. I take people to lunch. Uh, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that because that's something I don't think a lot of us really do think about because we're just so like, get the exit. But I do know, and I'm hearing more from entrepreneurs who are thinking, it's like, but what am I going to do next? Because I know this is a big part of what you do is prepare people for this. Exactly. Having that conversation now about what you enjoy. How do you spend your time? Who do you spend your time with? Is there something that you aspire to do that's outside of work and people you spend time with outside of work? And if we have more of a clear vision about that, those are things that are going to pull us forward. We'll be excited about that. For entrepreneurs that have a successful exit where it's a sizable enough exit to create a family office to do investments or a family office to do nonprofit work and, and, and donate to causes that you care about, that's a really interesting thing because in a lot of ways, you're then using your skills for other purposes, you know, how to think about your legacy in a, in a new way. And a lot of organizations support you in that. There are organizations, and I've talked to some on, on my show, that have family office services. So it's like a shared family office environment where 
they they can be advisors to the family office. And we should all be so fortunate to to think about some of those things. But isn't that interesting, right? To leave the corporate world, to leave the business you've created, but then create something so totally new and something that's so energizing. And I have talked to entrepreneurs who get into venture investing. They start a venture firm and it really could be anything. I have others that say, yeah, I want to, I'm a software guy, but I really want to do real estate. You know, I want to, I want to own different properties and different things. I want to travel the world. I want to spend time doing this and that. So having a plan, being able to be excited about that, those are those positive things. Those, again, those pull factors are going to get you excited about it. And if there's nothing you're excited about or you haven't given your time or, you know, given your mental space to, to think about and get excited about some of that, it's really hard. It's this psychological concept. It's called cognitive dissonance. It's imagine you're at a, you're at a protest and you're standing in the audience. You're like, I don't believe in this cause. What am I doing here? You physically have to kind of agree with the mental state you have on, on that. So imagine you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're not thinking forward. You're, you're not that excited about it. You're digging your heels in. How's that deal going to go? Is it really going to go through? Cause it's not really what you want. You have to kind of put yourself in that different headspace. And that can definitely take time and especially complex when there's other owners, maybe they're all in different headspaces or there's different family members that feel different ways. And so you have to kind of get on the same page with yourself and you have to get on the same page with your other your ownership team. I like that, you know, being able to put yourself because, you know, I think like after I, you know, as I said, I fell back and I had to rebuild I was done. I was burnt. I was toast. Yeah. I was just didn't matter. I was done. You know, I would have closed the door, you know, before I spent any more you know, mental effort continuing just because I, if something hadn't happened, so that is something better do that way before it actually happens. Cause it's not a good feeling when it does. Let's kind of talk about now that you're building this practice, what's the thing you do to work on your own entrepreneurial capabilities? Think about process a lot. It's something I advocate for my clients to have a transferable business. You should document things and create a process that you can always improve it, but at least you've written it down and you, someone else can do it besides you. And this is hard. I've struggled with this, particularly around my podcast. I have gotten more help with the podcast over time. There are probably more pieces I can hand off, but as a creator, I'm reluctant to hand those off, but over time, I know I will. And so my personal challenge to myself is around this process documentation and thinking about things more efficiently and getting other people to help me. And having virtual assistants, having interns, having people take ownership of a piece that I don't need to do myself so that I can think about what's the highest and best use of my time. What's my return on time? And in the beginning, I had zero help. And then over time, I thought, okay, I need the skill set. I can find that. There's so many amazing resources. And I'll say, though, for me, yes, I had a big team and I, I had walked away from that. But because I had been in startups and because I'd been in digital marketing for so many years, I'm very comfortable with learning new tools. And it's not all only about social media. It's about other things, too. You're, we're using this, this podcast platform. I tried out a few platforms. That's just one example. I think that it's important to, you know, understand what your strengths are and capabilities are. For me, I leaned in on it and it wasn't an issue. But I know, look, I'm not a video editor. I got to go get a video editor. I didn't want to learn it. Could I? Sure. But I knew inherently that's not what I want to be doing. And that's just one small example. But there are many uh, digital tools out there. And I, I guess I, the way I would explain it is, I created my own entrepreneurial stack. That's lingo from startups, right? They create their tech stack. They create their marketing stacks. So when I started working on my startup in earnest about two plus years ago, I set it up about 12 years ago, but really started working in about two plus years ago. And I had to rethink everything. And that is hard. <laughs> so I, I understand what you're saying about doing it yourself, rolling up your sleeves. And the encouragement I would give people is to lean in, know what you're comfortable with, just try it. A lot of these services you can subscribe to if it's not working. The other thing I'll say is take your credit card out. Don't just keep paying the fee if you're not using it because that subscription model is obviously a wonderful business model, but it's also, you know, your cash going out the door 
So I do from time to time kind of relook at what's in my stack and I put new things in, I'll take things out. And could I be more efficient? Of course. But I think for money spent, we have to be mindful of what we're spending because we are our own startup when we are doing this. And now that I'm partnered with some other folks, whether they're um, kind of affiliates of mine or Sony Hill Advisors, there's these other layers that come into how we do marketing and, and so on. But nonetheless, it's going to come back, especially if you're creating a, you're a brand for yourself and thinking about you as the brand. That's also different. Uh, those of us have been in big companies for a long time or even other companies that are not our own. It's not about us. It's about the team, right? And so for the first time when you're an entrepreneur like myself coming into this and thinking, oh, wow, I need to put myself out there in a new, different way. That was uncomfortable for me at first because it was always about the brand or the uh, my team or, you know, others. So it depends on, you know, the type of entrepreneurship. Again, for me, it's I'm I'm kind of a behind the scenes person when I work with a client. You know, what we do is not out on Front Street. But when it comes to my persona and being out there like on your show, AJ, and putting myself out there to say, hey, I'm a resource. You know, I want to be your resource. Come, you know, come find me. I have to be found. And so the marketing process, the selling process takes time, especially when you're building it from scratch. And I think that's a very, for entrepreneurs who have built their business, maybe they're more comfortable with that. But for folks like myself that are sort of seeing this in a new lens, our own trial and error, our, our at-bats, how we track that is a great learning experience. And it, someone told me early on, she said, you know, it's going to take you about three years going to take you about three years to really feel like things are humming. And next year will be my third year. And I feel like, yeah, she's probably right. And I'm feeling good now. But you know what? There's always momentum to, to kind of get things to click. And how do we generate that flywheel? And uh, I think the biggest thing here too, AJ, is patience. Like how to be patient with ourselves. We're all highly motivated people. We got a lot going on. You know, we make it happen. We're doers, right? And we're strat strategists and all that stuff and all the amazing stuff. But we have to have a little bit of grace for ourselves, especially, you know, we've had a crazy two years with COVID. We're, we're still figuring out a lot of things in our world. And I'm normally a very impatient person, but I have learned to become more comfortable with space and time where I'm not necessarily in control. I like that because, yeah, it is kind of this whole evolving. And yeah, comes also this marketplace, you know, the, you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur, I think is slightly changing. It's still the ability to create value out of nothing is my joke, but the way you still have to do the same basics and kind of go through your processes and work, but the levers you can pull to create impact and create value seem to be evolving. And that's kind of a fun space. It's still the same difficulties I've noticed, but you can do more earlier with just more thinking and more consideration set than I think you used to be able to. I love some of these small ones. That is really cool. Now that you are working and you are kind of on this three-year journey, two years in, how are you looking to define success as an entrepreneur? You've been, you know, you've been intrapreneur, but private equity, you've risen to the top of corporate You've had your own dance, which is always, you know, you've had multiple levels of success and now you're building this and helping other entrepreneurs. How are you looking to define your own success and where is that going to take you? Yeah, I have been working on this ramp on ramp for a few years and I think about it in terms of my own life stage and having a portfolio of things that I'm excited about and I feel like I'm contributing to the entrepreneurial community and the world I live in. And so there's a variety of things of how I spend my time. Of course, family, you know, uh, my life stage is that we're now empty nesters. We have two in college. And until this, literally this year or this, like last weekend, <laughs> look at it that way. It's, it's of course involved, uh, my number one job title, which is mom. And I've always acknowledged that, but I've also, as you've said in my career, been these other titles. And now at this life stage is, okay, I, I care about these other things and how I spend my time, talent, and treasure. We spent, you and I talked all morning here about the work that I'm doing with entrepreneurs to help them create value and transition with success. And that's really important to me. And the success around that is, is the owner's success, our buy side or sell side. 
And so there's a, a feeling of pride. Then there's also a monetary reward with that. And the other part of the portfolio is our board advisory work. I'm uh, an, an advisory board for a second generation construction company. And I do want to serve on more boards as a, either a fiduciary or advisory role. And um, the other part of that is nonprofit boards. And I do spend a significant amount of my time with nonprofit and organizations. I serve on the board for an organization here in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Promise, which is about um, post-secondary education. And that to me is a portfolio. It's very full. Then there's other things that I do in my life, you know, on the side, of course. But I think that this mentality or this idea that I've had for taking a portfolio approach was probably in my head about seven years ago. But when I was full-time, you know, CEO and, and managing these, all these different things, I didn't really have the time for that. It was a subset of things that I worked on. And, um, and so for me and my uh, vision of success, it's really trying to find that overall balance. I like that. That's a really nice approach to doing so. Lori, what's the best way the audience can learn more about small.big, about you? What's the best way and, and the best way to get in touch with you? They can find me in a couple of different ways. Smalldotbig.com is my website and you can get in contact with me there. A shortcut, if you want, is meetlauriebarkman.com and you can set up time with me there. And LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn. You can message me, connect with me there. If you do, please let me know that you heard me on AJ's show, Beyond Eight Figures. And uh, that's great feedback for both of us. Yes, it is. Everyone will have Lori's contact information and all these sites in the show notes, in the email, announcing the episode and everything. So we'll make sure you guys can find her straightforward. All right, Lori. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. There was a lot, you know, I enjoyed it very much. And, you know, a little bit of hindsight kicking on my part. Yeah. This, you had some very points that I was like, yeah, I wish I had known that, but just a lot to take into process the thinking about how to build going forward. So thank you for sharing with us. It was great to have you. My pleasure. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.